Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of Tales from Tolt. My name is Dwayne Davidson, your host. This is a program where we discuss the fascinating and rich history of that place we call the Snoqualmie Valley, basically from Monroe to North Bend. So today on the program, I've uh, got a really special guest to talk about one of my favorite topics when it comes to history that there is to talk about, and that's railroads. And uh, uh, Kiersey Lake is from the the Snoqualmie Railroad Museum, but that's not all she does. She's a busy one. She is involved in a couple of different endeavors, also with the Valley Museum. And so, Kiersey, welcome to the program. And do you want to tell us a little bit about what you do, not only for the Rail Museum, but also the, those other endeavors you do to help preserve uh, history in the Snoqualmie Valley? Well, thank you for having me on. Um, so I am the collections registrar at the Northwest Railway Museum, where I work full-time helping um, catalog all of our artifacts. I also am the only employee assistant director at the Snoqualmie Valley Historical Museum. So I do a similar job there, but then also do everything else from meeting with visitors to updating our website. I am a lifelong Valley resident and I love local history and am excited to be able to help share it with the community. I also am currently the King County Landmarks Chair uh, as of January. Oh, wow. That's a, that sounds that sounds like a lot of work. And even, even that last thing you just slipped in there, that's that's a lot of work, is it not? That's that takes a lot of your time. It, it is, but it's totally worth getting to share community history with everyone. Well, we appreciate everything you do. It's it, it's it's remarkable. Uh, the Rail Museum, which is going to be the topic that we're going to talk about today, everybody kind of, if you've been anywhere around the Snoqualmie Valley, you know about the depot in downtown uh, Snoqualmie. You've seen the trains run. Uh, to North Bend, but I want to talk a little bit about that railroad endeavor because I'm going to talk a little bit about a, a personal history here. Uh, when I was just a kid, preteen, uh, I think I was 10, my grandfather and my father took me on, I think it was the last trip. Unfortunately, it didn't have a steam locomotive at the head of it, but it was a diesel train, but nevertheless, we left Seattle and it went uh, in the normal route that went out by Balfour or something, and then down the east side of Lake Sammamish and to Issaquah, and then came up by Falls City and eventually Snoqualmie and North Bend. And it was just a thrilling experience. Even though I was very young, I can remember uh, several aspects of it. I can remember the train stopping on the trestle uh, at I-90. There was a big trestle for those folks who don't rem- remember. When you came into Issaquah, there was a huge trestle that crossed right there. And that was that train that went to uh, uh, Snoqualmie. I think that some people at one time thought that when they were going to develop this rail museum, that they would get the benefit of being able to run trains all the way from like a place like Issaquah up to Snoqualmie, which would really been thrilling to be able to take them by. It would have been the ultimate. There is no doubt about it, but it didn't come to pass. And there was several reasons for that. Do you want to share with me 
it was explored and that line between Issaquah and uh, Snoqualmie would have been an extremely expensive one to maintain, would it not? It, it would. Uh, today, typically um, for our five and a half miles of track, we're having to change out between four and 500 ties a year. And when you figure the cost of lumber, um, even using a volunteer or um, community work crews to do the labor, it's $100 a tie. So when you times 100 times four to 500, um, just for five and a half miles, just for ties, you can imagine the expense of maintaining a much longer section of track, especially one like the section from Snoqualmie Falls to Issaquah, which would have had 13 major wooden trestles uh, to maintain. And many of them um, were in very poor condition in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. By the time, even though the Railway Museum uh, started as the Puget Sound um, and Snoqualmie Valley Railway Historical Association in, I believe, 1958, might have been 1959, the exact date's eluding me. It wasn't until the 60s and 70s that they really were able to get things going enough um, where they were operating trains. And by then, that line had gone in in 1889. So it was getting to be an 80-year-old um, railway line that needed major work. And the funding just wasn't there to make that happen. And then there were considerations like Highway 10 was expanding into I-90 in that era, taking over some of area that the railway originally ran as well. Exactly, yes. And and you, you shared with me that uh, everybody knows, right, a current event right now is lumber prices. And one of the trestles alone, you shared it with me before the program, one of those trestles alone, the one that's nearest the falls, you got an estimate on what it would have cost. And this was yeah, a couple uh, of years ago. Ten, 10 years ago, we had an estimate that it would be close to $11 million to repair that trestle. And as building prices go up, my best guess would be that would be 20 to 30 million today. And that would be just the first of 13. Wow. Yeah. So um, that not was to mention the right of ways are no longer um, under the same ownership, and there would be lots of complications of doing that. And of I course, Snoqualmie Falls is a sacred site uh, to the Snoqualmie tribe. And I'm not sure if they would be comfortable with us extending into that area. Oh, that's a good point. And, and that's a good point. There would be those considerations because that's the Snoqualmies have got their uh, reservation legally, yeah. finally, uh, that was promised to them a long time ago. So that was, they've got that now and that would lead a whole, yeah, that's a good point. I never thought about that. So the trackage that you do have now that you, between uh, Snoqualmie and North Bend, it's a great set, it's a great ride. So it tracks it and there's two, tra there's two depots at um, uh, both ends. Uh, one of the, those is a historic depot that has been remodeled and just is a beautiful gem to go and visit and see, even if you don't take the train ride, just to see that uh, depot. They really built buildings grand in those days, did they not? They did. Um, so there's actually uh, three depots currently still along our tracks. Uh, the Snoqualmie Depot was built in 1890, and the town of Snoqualmie was uh, planted by the Snoqualmie Land Improvement Company in 1889 
by a bunch of the same shareholders that owned the Seattle Lakeshore and Eastern Railway, which was building the railway and the depot. And so they made Snoqualmie their grandest depot because they were trying to raise funds from back east and they were platting Snoqualmie as a uh, tourist resort. So they had a plan for a grand depot and where Railroad Park currently is, there it was supposed to be a park and where the gravel parking lot uh, across the street from that. It was supposed to be a grand hotel there. And um, so Snoqualmie Depot was built extremely fancy compared to the rest of the depots on the line, uh, very much in the Victorian architect style of the time. It remained um, a depot on the line. Seattle Lakeshore and Eastern Railway later became the Seattle and International and then Northern Pacific. And by the 1970s, uh, Burlington Northern Santa Fe had um, taken over the Northern Pacific lines and because they also owned um, part of the Milwaukee line that went to the Snoqualmie Falls Lumber Company mill, they didn't need the two sets of um, tracks less than a half mile away from each other. So they were going to be abandoning our line and were good enough to donate uh, the depot and the track right of way to um, what is now the museum and a group of volunteers in the 70s um, restored it and it's magnificent. And then we also um, on the line owned by Puget Sound Energy have the Snoqualmie Depot or Snoqualmie Falls Depot, which is there at the falls and power plant station. And they have that as the Puget Sound Energy Hydroelectric Museum currently. And it's a 19-teens depot. The original depot that had been there had burned down between 1914 and 1918. And so um, the current one there was rebuilt in that era. And then of course there's the North Bend Depot and the original North Bend Depot uh, was behind uh, Tweedy's Cafe, famous of course for Twin Peaks now. Um, where their parking lot is. And that was torn down in 1949 as they no longer needed that depot. Our line originally was built with grand plans that it was gonna cross Snoqualmie Pass and go on to Walla Walla and meet up with the Great Northern Railway. And in 1893, there was a global recession or uh, depression um, known as the Panic of 1893, and it ended up bankrupting our line before they got all the way over Snoqualmie Pass. When they reformed, they changed their plans for the route they were going to take and abandoned the plan to go over Snoqualmie Pass. Anyway, so our line became, instead of a major line that was going to be a transcontinental line, it just became a line that was used more locally for um, taking timber and agricultural products to market and then bringing in goods to the valley. And so by the 1940s, because we also had the Milwaukee Everett branch running through North Bend, there wasn't the need to be having basically six depots within a five mile radius. So the depot in North Bend, uh, it sounds like that was tore down, but there's a depot there now that you folks there use. Is, so yeah. that is a replica. Uh, so how close is that in to what the the original one was in design? I think, it, um, I think it is more closely representative of 
the Milwaukee Depot that was also in North Bend. So North Bend had a Northern Pacific Depot that was built in 1889 that was torn down in 1949. And then um, by Two Rivers School, there was a Milwaukee Depot that was um, built in, I believe, 1911, and that was torn down in the 70s. I believe they used, they wanted to give the feel of a historic depot but you also want to make sure there's elements that it stands out that it's not historic. So I think they use some design elements from both of the original depots to give the impression of a historic depot, but it's not the original. And it was built in uh, 1987 in joint partnership between the museum and the city of North Bend uh, with tourist recreation funds. The city of North Bend owns it and then we have a lease with them. And so for rolling stock, what do you, uh, is way of locomotives, how many of those have you restored? As far as locomotives, we have three operating locomotives, but I believe we have around 14 on site and we have over 76 pieces of rolling stock that we classify as large objects over a ton. So if it's a smaller, piece of rolling stock like our log disconnects um, or our fire car that might be considered a small object because it weighs less than a ton. Um, so we have currently two 1950s diesel electric locomotives that we normally pull the train set with. And I believe one was a US Army and the other was a US Navy engine. Um, oh. And then we have a 1898 steam locomotive, uh, Northern Pacific 924 that we just um, substantially completed restoring. So it's operating for special events currently. And then we have quite a few different other uh, historic locomotives within the collection. Uh, we have the small Plymouth locomotive that operated at Hanford during World War II. So we have um, some volunteers from the U.S. Navy Coast Guard that are coming out and helping us restore it. And eventually we'll be doing an exhibit about the locomotive that helped build the bomb. Um, wow. And explore the role of uh, the railway and different trains in the different world wars. Well, that's a good recap of, and it was so fascinating about how many locomotives you've restored. There's also, like you, you alluded to a little bit about some of the special cars that and uh, other rolling stock. There's one particular one that we have to go to the break right now, but there's one particular one right when we come back from break that I'd like you to talk about, a very, very special car. And so, uh, so we're going to stop for just a couple moments now, and we'll be right back. See you soon. You're listening to Valley 104.9 FM, your station for Northwest eclectic music. Hi, I'm Seth Shostak, and I'm an actual scientist, although I don't wear a white lab coat. Maybe a straight jacket. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm a science journalist, and we are your hosts on Big Picture Science, bringing you the latest from the labs every week. So join us Thursdays at 6 p.m. for the coolest in science and technology, Big Picture Science. That's Thursdays at 6 p.m. right here on Valley 104.9 FM. Okay, welcome back. Continuing to talk to Chrissy Lake with the Railroad Museum up in Soquelmie, a fascinating organization up there that have done so much to preserve rail history of the Pacific Northwest. And it's also a fun place to go uh, and take the family because they do fun things. 
and they do a lot of restoration of a lot of uh, uh, old rail locomotives and cars. And there's one particular rail car that I'm just fascinated by that that uh, I didn't even know existed, but what a history it has. And it is a that was used for church services. Chrissy, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, about this car? Yeah, so we have the Chapel Car Messenger of Peace. It was one of 13 church cars that were built by uh, various denominations. Ours was built for the Baptist Church, uh, but there was also chapel cars for the Catholic, Methodist, Eastern Orthodox uh, Church in Russia, along with the Baptist Church. And they were cars where they would station a missionary to travel around with the railway car to set up congregations. Um, when you think of Washington State at the turn of the century, it very much was the West and considered by some the Wild West with lots of single guys that liked drinking and uh, hardworking um, and not necessarily going to regular church <laughs> services. Uh, so the Baptist church felt that there was a strong need within the communities out here in the Pacific Northwest to have some of their version of religion brought out here. Uh, so they stationed a minister and his wife in uh, the chapel car and they traveled out here. Over the years, there were a series of different couples that were stationed there, but they've traveled around to seven different states setting up congregations. Our chapel car was stationed out here in Washington for a good portion of its life. It actually traveled to Issaquah and then out to North Bend on our line to hold a retreat in 1917 and 18, right as World War I was starting to have American involvement. Uh, the U.S. had passed the Alien Sedition Act, and because the mines at Issaquah were owned by a subsidiary of the Kaiser Wilhelm Corporation, they were confiscated. And um, as many people know, Kaiser Wilhelm was, of course, the head of Germany at the time. And because Germany was on the opposite side of U.S. allies, we confiscated their property. And that caused the miners to riot. So the um, minister came out to bring peace to the rioting miners and then held a Baptist retreat in North Bend. It was also stationed in Everett to help operate a YMCA for years. It's a gorgeous car built in, I believe, 1898. It's all wooden. There's probably a 60-foot section that would have had uh, what you and I would think of as the more traditional church section with a pulpit and pews. And then there's two sections past that uh, that are each about 10 foot by 10 foot. Um, one is the living quarters with the bedroom slash office in one room in a 10 foot by 10 foot section. And then the other section, 10 foot by 10 foot section is broken into a hallway with some closets, a really tiny kitchen, and an even smaller washroom facility that is where their toilet was. That was just uh, a toilet with a hole down into the ground for the waste to drop on the tracks <laughs> with their uh, ice box, which of course was their version of a refrigerator in that same room. 
So you can imagine on hot days how the minister's wife did not like the sanitation issue on that car. A couple of the families stationed there were actual families with children, and they also lived in that small confined space. Amazing. And so the car operated until the 1940s when it was decommissioned, and then it was turned into a roadside diner. And then later on, it was turned into a beach cabana. In the late 2000s, the owner of the cabana decided to donate the car to the museum. We went through a process to restore it. And it's one of uh, our King County landmarks. And it's also a city of Snoqualmie landmark. And the restoration project took about eight man years, which we accomplished in two years with having four full-time workers on it. And it cost about a half a million dollars to restore. Wow. Um, and a typical railway restoration project is between half a million to a million dollars once you count for all of um, supplies and labor. And once, um, and once you, uh, you, you said earlier that one of the occupants or one of the people that preached from that train was a, uh, Moody of the Moody Bible Institute that we know today yeah. and the family and so fascinating well, history. Has, it has a very fascinating history. So uh, Reverend Moody knew he was sick and traveled home back to his home state in the chapel car. So it was his last railway journey. And it was also in the St. World's Fair or St. Louis World's Fair in 1904. And it tied for first place for best railway car uh, during wow. the Wow. And so, uh, the, sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. So, so uh, we should talk a little bit about some of the, uh, the other exhibits that people have that they can see out there. There's uh, several other buildings other than these yeah. depots that we talked about. Over the last 25 years, we've been implementing our long-term strategic plan, and that incorporated having a railway history center campus. Currently, we've built three out of the four buildings we're going to build on that site. It's, a, I believe, seven-acre site. And so we have our train shed exhibit building, which is a 25,000-square-foot exhibit space. So it has four tracks in it with about 24 cars and locomotives in a semi-climate-controlled environment. And we have exhibits in there. So the theme of that building is the railway changed everything. And we focus on how the railroad influenced the development of the Pacific Northwest, changing traditional food ways, how people access their food, how people settled. The um, railways completely changed settlement patterns and populations, industry, and uh, trade networks. And so the exhibits currently explore that. And then we also have a second uh, theme that's explored in the train shed of uh, different railway workers. So currently we have an exhibit on Abby Hill, who was a painter that was hired by both the Great Northern and Northern Pacific to paint a national park landscapes that they then used in their advertising uh, media. And she was based out of Tacoma. We have another exhibit uh, talking about the Japanese railway workers that worked um, both at Snoqualmie Falls Lumber Company, but then also across the region. Um, another exhibit explores photographs that were taken by Jack Delaney 
uh, during World War II of different railway workers. Railways have always been an extremely diverse employer. Both men and women have worked for the railways and people from all sorts of uh, backgrounds. They tended to hire immigrant groups because they could get away with paying them less. So mm -hmm. over the years, every new group that started to come to the region has had a foothold in the railway industry. And we oh. wanted to explore that a little bit more. And then our railway history campus also has our railway education center that has a classroom and then our library and archives. And we touched on uh, that we restore pieces. And so we have a conservation and restoration workshop uh, and we follow the National Park Service standards of restoration. So we keep as much of the historic material of cars as we restore them as possible. And then if we do have to replace something to bring it up to modern safety codes, we replace it with as close to the like material as possible. So like on the chapel car, the end platforms of the car had rotted away. And so we were able to find some oak beams from an Amish barn that was built at the same time as the chapel car originally was and used those because those were as close to the original material as we could get. And it's um, so neat that you guys go to that kind of level of detail. That's yeah. That, yeah, that's it's neat. Amazing. Our plans are to actually build a roundhouse gallery and we're hoping to start the first phase of construction next year and it'll feature a turntable, a building that'll have seven tracks going into it. Um, with each track telling an important story, like having our snowplow in there telling the story of the Wellington disaster up on Stevens Pass, which was the uh, worst avalanche disaster in U.S. history, but also has this major railroad connection. It'll also feature a 5,000 square foot uh, model railway up on the second floor as well, which we're excited about, and additional classroom spaces. Wow. So if, uh, if people want to come out and bring the family out for a train ride, uh, that's one of the funnest things to do. When does that, when does that occur? What, what are yeah. the hours? Um, so our trains operate uh, Saturdays and Sundays. Um, they can book their train tickets in advance at trainmuseum.org. During the summer, we're currently running four trains a day on the weekends. There's tickets still available for this coming weekend, but then uh, July 9th through 18th, we'll be having Dale with Thomas, uh, where Thomas the Tank Engine is coming. And unfortunately, we completely sold out of that event already, but we will be running um, our regular trains through uh, mid-November, and then we'll be having our Santa train event for the four weeks after Thanksgiving. And then uh, we'll take a short break during Christmas and restart again in mid-January. Our train shed exhibit building and railway history campus is currently open Wednesdays through Mondays, 11 to 4 p.m. Um, through September. And then for the rest of the year, we'll be open Thursdays through Sundays, 11 to 4 p.m. Okay. And then Stokwami Depot is open year-round, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. And you've talked about how many hours of volunteer work has gone into many of these projects, and those are still ongoing, so uh, there's always need for volunteer help. 
with the museum. If people think that they might uh, want to explore that opportunity of volunteering uh, for the organization, how do they contact you? Uh, yeah, if they would like to volunteer, we can definitely use lots of volunteers. Currently, we have about 160 active volunteers, but we definitely could use more. People are interested in volunteering for Day Out with Thomas. I know our volunteer coordinator is also looking for more help with that, but they can reach out to Emily, uh, who's our volunteer coordinator. Her email is emily at trainmuseum.org. Or they can uh, go to our website, trainmuseum.org, and there's a volunteer section there. And they'll fill out a volunteer application um, and have an interview with Emily uh, to kind of um, visit the, explore the museum and um, what all the opportunities are for volunteering. And then she gets them started. And then there's always a need. Uh, the other thing that makes things go other than hands and hard work is money. And there's always the opportunity to give because it is nonprofit. And so if you feel so compelled that you don't have the time to give, you could uh, send a few bucks their way. It would be put to good use because you, as you heard, all these projects do take a lot of, uh, take a lot of money. Well, Chrissy, uh, we have uh, ran out of time. I could talk about this literally for an entire afternoon because I like trains that much, but we need to end this program. Uh, but I think the viewers are probably going to hear you again when we have the opportunity uh, to talk about the uh, about that other endeavor that you alluded to at the very beginning with the Valley Museum, which will be an upcoming program. And so until then, folks, uh, thank you for joining us today and uh, tune in next week as we continue this uh, journey up and down the valley talking about the interesting, fascinating history of the Soquami Valley. Thanks, folks. Thank